Yeah, I think um, we're heading into an episode of like the highest highs of a good time and the lowest lows of a bummer story. <laughs> yeah, it is uh, ups and downs. This is going to be a roller coaster <laughs> like, episode. I had a smile on my face. I've seen this movie. But let's just put this. Both Jen and I were calling out like minutia dialogue lines seconds before they were said in the oh, movie. Man. Like, <laughs> I was I was also just remembering I had the poster for this movie up in my room when it came out. Oh, wow. And uh, this was a movie celebrated by the entire Saunderson household. We saw it in the theater as a family. <laughs> hey, and we all, like, I told my dad, we're covering it today. And he was like, one of the best. One of the very best movies. It kind of has everything you need. It, it's like the perfect meal of a movie. It's deathly entertaining. Just like, it's 136 minutes and doesn't feel it. It's just like it's such yeah. a good time. That last, yeah, especially like that last like hour, it goes yeah. by so quickly. It is like so like that you know maybe it takes like a little time to just put all the plate, but once the pieces are once in the, place, once the SWAT team is eliminated, mm-hmm. it's just like boom. It's like set piece, yeah. set piece, set piece, set piece. Hello and welcome to the award-winning podcast, The Academy Academy. The show that discovers the absolute, undeniable, and scientifically proven greatest performance in your favorite actor's esteemed career. I'm Don Saunderson. I'm Patrick Gremion. Welcome to the Academy. And welcome to another edition of A Visionary Alliance. Simpson Bruckheimer Digression Volume 3. This week, of course, we are covering the final Simpson Bruckheimer collaboration. 1996's action American action thriller film, The Rock. And um, boy, we have a lot to go through this week. Wow. So yes, I think is... we may just lay it out. We are probably going long. Uh, deal with it. Yeah, <laughs> if you, you, thought, G.I. Yeah, if you yeah. thought G.I. Jane was a long episode, who are we? Should be noted ahead of time if you want to stop now, if you are a fortunate, I would call you a fortunate soul. If you've not seen The Rock before, because you're in for a dang treat right now, Ooh. pause the show, head over to your streaming services or your video store. You can rent it through all the streaming services. There is a nice Blu-ray edition. I discovered when I was comparing and contrasting my Blu-ray copy and my DVD copy from the Criterion Collection that the Disney Blu-ray ported over all of the special features from the Criterion DVD. So if you felt like you may have missed something from that Criterion DVD, don't worry about it. It's all there on this uh, Disney Blu-ray edition of it. Uh, I have both because I'm psycho. <laughs> I have a I have a question. Is yes. there like a is there a director's cut of the or was Michael Bay like this is perfect how it is? Dude, that is like maybe the glory of Michael Bay. Is he is not he does not he is not really a director's cut guy. <laughs> like he's like hey, I'm I done. Feel, yeah, I think he's pretty comfortable with the way things end up. Um <laughs> and he should be in this case. Um I think The Rock is a masterpiece of what it is. Of this style. Um, You know, it's not, you know, (laughs) discussing any major social trends or, you know. Yeah, this isn't uh, isn't Cundin. 
yeah, it's not an issues picture per se, but in terms of a absolute rock'em sock'em action spectacular, you can do. There are a few movies that you could do better. This is than this the type film. of this is the type of movie where if they had an Academy Award for best sequence. Mm-hmm. This would win it. If there like, was a sequence. Well, it would be like three sequences from the movie would have been nominated out of the five nominees. Yes, it'd be like three from this movie, and then I don't know, like one from the Thomas Crown Affair or yes. whatever was playing. <laughs> oh man, I don't even know um, what movies would be releasing sequences in 1996. But before we dive into the rock, all the nitty gritty, all of the production details, the love fest that is to come, we do need to get to the broader picture of this series, which is, of course, Don Simpson and Jerry Bruckheimer. As we left off the last time we spoke of these fellas on the uh, Dangerous Minds Bad Boys episode, we left it with a foreboding line about the year 1995. The year to come would be the best in Simpson's entire career. It would also be his last. And... This, so what we're talking about is the year 1995, of course, the year that um, Crimson Tide, Bad Boys, and Dangerous Minds came out, put the guys back on top. Simultaneously, though, things were absolutely spiraling out of control for Don Simpson. As I had mentioned in August of 1995, a young doctor who um, was living in Simpson's pool house, who had a severe drug issue died of a drug overdose at Simpson's pool house, which caused a massive investigation and a massive lawsuit by the, the his, his doctor's surviving family. Simpson's drug abuse also led, it was also led to discovering a series of shady doctors all over Los Angeles who were prescribing prescription pills willy-nilly to the rich and famous and Don Simpson on almost all of their lists. Simpson was abusing not only prescription drugs, but of course, um, illegal recreational drugs, in particular cocaine, um, drinking heavily and um, bouncing between extreme binge diets and overeating. The indulgences were and um, partaking, continuously partaking in um, escort services and sex workers pretty much nonstop. Um, All of this was making things in the mind of his business partner, Jerry Bruckheimer, beginning to feel um, a tad untenable. The death of the doctor uh, particularly unnerved Jerry Bruckheimer. Um, You know, within a month of the doctor's overdose at Simpson's pool house, um, they met in on September of in September of ninety five. Simpson and Bruckheimer met at the Bel Air Hotel to begin discussing their professional divorce. The according to sources, it was brief. Not uh, meeting was um, no more than thirty minutes long, mm-hmm. and Bruckheimer told Simpson he wanted out of the partnership. Um, they negotiated everything and split absolutely everything. Like between them, down to desks, there was negotiations for <laughs> as they went through it. Um, and then there was, of course, the hot projects on their developmental roster, 
um, that they both coveted. Um, one film in particular that was going to go into production in 1996 that Don Simpson absolutely hated that he gladly handed over to Jerry Bruckheimer was the was Con Air, which of course mm. um, we'll get to it, but massive massive success. <laughs> um, he was uh, he was Don Simpson's big obsession was a TV series called Soldier of Fortune. Um, that uh, he really wanted and he was going to exchange any rights he had on the TV version spinoff of Dangerous Minds for it. Um, because um, the not only did the television show not interest Don Simpson, the feature never really interested him in the first place. <laughs> um, weeks earlier, the Daily Variety had put out a riff rumor to her no longer street, uh, speaking. Bruckheimer told the writer... It's all rumor and innuendo. The relationship is on. Of course, things were already on their way out, actually, in that moment. And despite the revenues being the best they had ever been for Simpson and Bruckheimer, the relationship was breaking up and Simpson slid for basically slid further into a depression. Um, he, as late as July of 94, got back in time, he was going in and out of as many rehab facilities as possible all over the world, trying to recover and find some sort of way. Um, he went to one famous one, though, and this is kind of emblematic of Simpson's personality. He discovered someone he knew was also there, and he was so ashamed that he would be seen there that he ran away from rehab. Mm. He didn't want to be recognized while he was at rehab because he just... He, it was just too much for him to admit this weakness, to admit that he needed help, in a sense. Um, it was just really, really unsuccessful for him. And um, and he continued to try other things. You know, he went to AA and he even, um, and this is an interesting thing. So the big thing about AA is that the big, you have to surrender. Mm -hmm. Like say you are, weak and not capable and not being able to handle these demons and you have to give in to God or higher power, if you will. Right. Um, he could not wrap his head around that portion of things. He also um, joined Scientology in an attempt to get clean. I did not know that. And because he was a very, very rich man, he shot his way up the Thetan rankings. Uh, yeah, got all those good Thetans. Uh, pretty, pretty fast. And he said he made OT3, Operating Thetan. And um, at that point, I realized it was a con. John Simpson's words. <laughs> and he probably got shown the Space Dragon stuff. Oof, all that, happens, stuff. that happens to a lot of people who are like, what? <laughs> I will say I was on a I was on Twitter recently and there's a lot of problems right now with um they're trying to have they're having a hard time finding people to advertise cuz they mm -hmm. think they're like shedding advertisers like flies and um one of the ads I got was for like the Scientology app. Yeah. It was like, "Oh man, they're we're here now. This is this, this is where good. this is where we're at." I mean, I think it's going to be Scientology and like as Stephen King said, the pillow guy. 
Ubi <laughs> yeah, it's like Stephen King, or uh, not Stephen King, it's the Pillow Guy, Scientology, <laughs> and then there's just, like, weird ads that, like, you know, little biz, like, like the, like, the equivalent to, like, ads you would see in, like, your local, like, you know, com commercials at three in the morning. But yeah, so simultaneously with his rehabilitation attempts with um, to work on his spiritual and his chemical dependencies, mm. um, he also had become obsessed with creating, developing, or buying the body he felt he deserved. And uh, just a heads up, folks, this is going to get a little funky or graphic, however you want to do right, it. Right, right. And you know, I feel you. You probably feel kind of sad about it all. Yeah. Between 1988 and 1994, he underwent at least ten surgical procedures designed to increase his appeal and improve his looks. Um, during the time Peter period, he had collagen injections in his cheeks and chin to make them more pronounced, a forehead lift, a restructuring of his eyebrow to give it a sterner definition liposuction on his belly to make it flatter, a buttocks lift to make his uh, bottom firmer, collagen injections in his lips to make them firmer and fuller and more sensual, and injections of fat into his penis to make it wider and more wieldy. Oh, Don Simpson. Not you. Not you, Don Simpson. Uh, and, this, and this, according to the book, in this, as in all things, Simpson was only anticipating a national trend and overdoing it. Um, so the um, basically to have the penis injection, you get the fat liposuction out of your abdomen to huh. do that, which sounds awful. That would hurt it. That's oh well. No. We're gonna get weirder here. Um, so. The injection of liposuction fat into a penis often leads to infection. Mm. Bad. Swelling, discoloration, pain. Um, led to a thing called the bumpy penis. Former employee spoke strictly on condition of anonymity, drove his boss on multiple occasions to visit the plastic surgeon who performed the girth enhancement. It turned all black and blue. It was very painful. There was a lot of swelling and fever. In the end, they had to take out whatever was in there. You can't believe how pissed Don was. God, that's just like truly uh, just grim. And um, according to a plastic surgeon, this is their thoughts on this procedure. We always say that the men who want their penises enlarged ought to have their other head examined because it is more of a self-esteem issue than one of true size. Most of the people who want this operation, in my experience, had normal penises to begin with. Well, yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Oh, man. In addition to that, he had a procedure done around the time of Days of Thunder that he was eager to increase his sex drive and general energy level. He had testosterone implants placed into his buttocks. Their time release function failed, though, however, flooding his system with very high doses of aggression-inducing hormone. This may have resulted in a reported exchange between Simpson and Bruckheimer and Thunderset when Simpson said he literally ripped the door off of one of the production vehicles. I don't know what you're taking, Bruckheimer re reportedly responded, but whatever it is, stop taking it. Jerry Bruckheimer seems to have had... Um, It, very interesting. 
how he treats Don Simpson. Infinite seems to be infinite patience and infinite forgiveness in this in the way I think you see with um siblings or family who have family members who they love dearly who are mm. struggling. Um you know, he doesn't want to abandon Don. He wants to see him healthy. They he feels their partnership and friendship is valuable. Um, so Simpson once said, anything worth doing is worth overdoing. It's not enough until it's too much, because how do you know it's enough until it's too much? That's the only way to find out. Well, that logically is sound. Um, yeah, there's... <laughs> the human body can only take so much. So on the morning of December 20th, 1995, Readers of Variety and The Hollywood Reporter were greeted with the following headlines. Top Gun producers go separate ways. Simpson and Bruckheimer split. It was official. The partnership, which had begun in 1983, produced 10 films and earned revenues in excess of $3 billion was, offici was officially over. Their press release. The decision to form our own individual companies is a direct result of our desires to move in mutually supported directions and to produce as many films a year as we individually choose. We are, and as always will remain, close friends and look forward to working together to successfully complete the many projects we currently have in progress. Bruckheimer said it was all rumor and innuendo about their rift. He said, we are still good friends. I talk to him every day. There's no animosity. We had a good run together. There was no comment anywhere in the press from Don Simpson. The what what he didn't what Bruckheimer did not say is that he simply had had enough, as we kind of have alluded to, and Bruckheimer's a serious guy. We've seen in the last almost thirty years of his solo work, nonstop level of professional success. Um, the nineteen eighties were clearly over, and they're heading in a much different direction in some senses. Yeah, um, like it, it. It almost kind of reminds me of like casino when at the very end, yeah. when, like the business, like you know, like love, old Vegas is gone, folks. It's Disneyland now. You can't, you can't have a weird penis and be snorting well, coke all over the place. There's also a very real kind of De Niro Pesci relationship from Casino that is a comparable to the Bruckheimer Simpson relationship. One could yeah. say, yeah, yeah. Uh, so a lot of people had. Um, said that Jerry Bruckheimer's wife was kind of a big factor too in pushing him away from Simpson. Yeah. Um, that's, under that's understandable. Yeah. You know, for more than a decade, the shy reticent Detroit native had operated as Simpson as a Simpson apologist explaining away to friends or to reporters. Simpson's repeated disappearances into drug rehab facilities are worse. His disappearances from them, you know, Don Bruckheimer would purr into the telephone. He's in Hawaii beefing up or he's in Arizona working on his tan but their business dealings were going frequent were going infrequent Simpson had been almost totally absent from the late 1995 production of The Rock an action thriller starring Sean Connery and Nicolas Cage which Simpson which Simpson and Bruckheimer were producing under his deal at Disney he visited the San Francisco set on Alcatraz only once and was seen on the sound stages at Sony where post-production and interior scenes were shot only twice he um he was just drifting away 
Right. The um, there was a, it, they previously indicated though that they could not even envision solo careers. Bruckheimer once said that he and his partner were different parts of the same brain. I'm introverted, shy. My partner is extroverted. Someone who likes to be the center of attention. I'd rather put the process together than stand back and let the well-greased machine work. He prefers to be on the mantle. Simpson had replied, now that you've said all these derogatory things about me, let me say that it's not an accurate assessment. It's just that I have a particular aptitude for the conceptual and no love of process for the sake of process. I'm an active, creative person. Very, very Don Simpson quote there. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Others thought the entire thing would have dire consequences, the split. For both producers. Don can sell, but he can't execute. Jerry can execute, but he can't sell. Don needs to be managed. He's not capable of having a self-governed life. Don is a creative genius. He but he is difficult to manage, at war with himself, but he's really talented. But he doesn't have Jerry's organizational skills. Jerry's interested in the details, but he's not so good with talent. It's going to be hard for them. Each of them needs someone to bounce off of. When they did, it was good chemistry, and they made money. People, people everywhere were saying, Jerry can probably stand alone. Or Don can't. Or Don can stand alone. Jerry can't. Sides were being chosen. and um, But the big thing is that a lot of people in the, the true inner circle believed that Jerry was doing it as an intervention. That they would get back together. If Jerry split them, that would convince Don to finally get the true adequate help he needed. Right. Which actually makes some sense to me. It, but that is also very, very like a genuinely trying and kind gesture for a mega producer in Hollywood, which is, mm-hmm. I shouldn't be so naive to believe that to be. Yeah, I mean, there's probably like a kernel, there, there's at least a kernel of truth in that, I think. And like, yeah. I it's, think yeah. th- there are elements. I think there are elements of truth. Absolutely. Um, so moving along, though, they have we do have one final project that in the midst of this is being shot and edited and put together. And that is, of course, The Rock mm-hmm. that we mentioned. Don had um, not been hugely a part of but on paper he was looking productive there's the rock there's the three films from um 95 and a lot looking forward um and by all accounts don simpson was and we will get into kind of the story in just a moment here but uh we'll get the don simpson side um in the scripting phase don simpson was almost solely responsible for conceiving of the ed harris character Oh, wow. Um, according to screenwriter Jonathan Hensley, um, Simpson took charge of the Harris character and guided Hensley through his rewrite, which was substantial. The original script was silly, Hensley said. It wasn't adult. The plot was ludicrous. At first, I refused to do it because the whole story was so unreal. Um, among Hensley's problems, the Connery Cage characters take over the heavily armed and defended Alcatraz in an unassisted assault with a single rubber boat. The Connery character has no Secret Service background and is simply an ex-con who escaped from Alcatraz. <laughs> they did excellent work. We'll get to it. What, what they ended up with. <laughs> um, I talked to Don extensively, Hensley said. I asked him, how can a guy escape from Alcatraz at the end of the movie when everyone knows that no one ever escaped from Alcatraz? If he escaped from Alcatraz, how come no one knows about it? Don had the answer. No one knew he was there in the first place. He was a secret prisoner. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, solve one problem. Another persisted. Ed Harris' character was thoroughly one-dimensional, thoroughly unsympathetic. Simpson and Hensley had a marathon late-night phone conversations, uh, more than a dozen over one month period of time, um, and just go, go, go. Uh, Hensley um, found his producer a lunatic, but very funny and full of life. <laughs> about an hour or so on the phone Hensley would say I'm gonna it's getting late I'm gonna go make a drink Simpson would say I'll join you the two men would drink and talk and drink some more usually until Simpson said let's take a break I'm getting kind of fucked up let's pick up tomorrow <laughs> um, Simpson had just read the memoirs of a much decorated Vietnam field commander and seen a story on 60 minutes investigation on Marines who had done covert unlawful uh, work in Southeast Southeast Asia Um and promptly abandoned the Marines' families if the soldiers were killed. Simpson combined elements of both and gave Ed Harris's character an honorable mission. And a sympathetic reason to take over Alcatraz and hold the city of San Francisco hostage. He's going to stand his ground until the Pentagon made himself accountable to the men who had died serving their country. Simpson's contribution was in creating a really compelling villain, Hensley said. A soldier with a noble end, but unfortunately, psychotic means. Very, very true. Like yeah, that's actually quite solid uh screen craft. <laughs> like right oh, there. Definitely. Well, and it's also he's so Simpson is so good at just like I feel like there's just this recurring theme with him where he'll he will watch something on sixty minutes or you know, it's him and Brookheimer, they'll read a magazine, they'll watch a special on sixty minutes and they're like, No, that's not bad. I'm gonna plug that and they use it like effectively. Yeah, they um they've got like a laser guided missile way to identify like, oh, that's a movie. Yes. You know, that is hard to do because like a lot of people could say that's a movie and then get 40 pages in. I'm like, well, I'm not sure this is a movie anymore. <laughs> oh, 100 percent. Yeah. You, there's a lot of stories that uh, on paper seem like they're not on paper in real life seem like they have stories. But when you start writing it out, you're like, oh, no, this only goes so far. Like he's able to like, mm-hmm. you know, effectively take things from life and use them in ways that you know, beef up what they currently have, which is impressive. Absolutely. So the story of The Rock, though, was originally conceived um, by in a spec script by two writers named David Weisberg and Douglas Cook. Mm. Uh, the script, though, after it was picked up, basically, though, the this outline of hostage situation on Alcatraz was kind of the general theme. Uh, the script, though, was picked up by many, many writers beyond mm-hmm. them. Jonathan Hensley uh, participated in quite a bit and became part of a big dispute with the Writers Guild that eventually involved um, uh, Michael Bay writing an open letter of protest to get Hensley credit because he was like he was the most important writer we had on this piece. But interesting sub couple sub writers who were involved. Aaron Sorkin did a, 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 quite a bit of work on it, as did Quentin Tarantino. Did some uncredited script writing on there as well, and yeah, you can I, you can kind of feel them both at times. <laughs> oh, totally! Like yeah, like that, um, like that one scene where Nicolas Cage is playing guitar with his shirt off. That feels like something out of a Quentin Tarantino movie. And talking about like the Beatles. Stuff. Yes. All despite, the Beatles, exactly. That's the main part. <laughs> despite the fact he paid way too much for that LP. Um, and then another yeah. interesting thing is Los Angeles-based screenwriting, British screenwriting team, Dick Clement and Ian Lafrenet, 
were brought in at Sean Connery's request to rewrite all of Connery's dialogue. And and I know these guys. Uh, you, you know, to give him a bit of a um, basically to like be British. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know? Well, and also to make him sound like a certain chap. Yeah, who, uh, we, we could get to nerd. that. Uh, who's got a code number? <laughs> <laughs> Friends with Judy Dench. <laughs> yes. So, um, the basic storyline to The Rock. Now that we've gotten through some of the writers here, uh, and it should be noted that the final credited writers screenplay by David Weisberg, Douglas Cook, and Mark Rosner. We did not mention Mark Rosner in any of those things that we just said and um story by david weisberg and douglas cook but as we know this was a the work of quite a few cooks to get Mm. to where they got in this film basic storyline is brigadier general francis hummel is probably like the most decorated troop ever based on how he's described in this and uh his wife has passed away his wife has a grave that simply says his wife which my brother and i have laughed at for (laughs) 20 years (laughs) what did you do in what did you do in life i was his wife (laughs) bitch you were famously married (laughs) famously uh married to general francis hummel um francis hummel feels that there has been a grave injustice done to many of the troops that he lost, that that he was under command of that were lost in a uh, very, very black ops level covert missions that essentially were disappeared. Families were given no benefits. There was no military funeral. Mm-hmm. Being upset about this, I think, is um, an admirable thing. And this is important to his character that what he he is not it's not about greed and it's not about crazy behavior. He, at his heart of hearts, Francis Hummel thinks he is doing something noble. Yeah, which is much different than say Tommy Lee Jones and Gary Busey in Under Siege or something like that. <laughs> yeah, or like um, yeah, exactly. Like or you know like uh any of the other characters. but like, it's like it's fight, like yeah. it's but it's an opposite of a hans gruber because hans mm-hmm. gruber was so much fun in die hard because he makes it seem like he's this big political operative but it's this big cover just because he wants to rob this place and it's yeah, really he funny money. yeah he just wants money which is really <laughs> funny and he's like at this place like yeah nobody <laughs> buy it it's like <laughs> so it's like it's good to have this like double move from your bad guys rather than have them just be a straight line psycho we have a couple straight line psychos. We'll get to them in a bit. <laughs> so General Francis Hummel's plan is to seal a stockpile of 16 VX gas loaded rockets. What is VX mm. gas? Scary shit. In 1996, I was petrified at this stuff. <laughs> yeah, it, it turns you into a, like a goop monster. It's like, like straight out of like, yeah, like a David Cronenberg or Stuart Garden movie or something yeah, like that. Yeah, right. Or like even like something like George Romero. Yeah, yeah. You, you turn into a George Romero zombie. It's you breathe too much of this stuff in. Phenomenal. Yeah. <laughs> it it's rules. Ex, it's rules. It's so much better than just a normal rocket that they could they could have done missiles. They could have just had missiles. Or nuclear yeah. bombs. Now this is no. way scary. this is scary. So they steal these rockets and then the next day they seize control of former prison turn tourist attraction Alcatraz Island off of San Francisco taking 81 tourists hostage Mm. 
Hummel threatens to launch the rockets against San Francisco unless the U.S. government pays him $100 million from a covert slush fund that he will distribute <laughs> to his men and to the families of the Marines who were lost. Naturally, the U.S., as we've learned from many, many, many of an action movie, we do not negotiate with terrorists. No, so no. they go through a pl- there. The basic next sequence of the film is the pl- game plan is that a elite Navy SEAL team is brought in to they are going to storm Alcatraz, but they need help from some specialists, which brings us to our two leads. One, the first specialist is FBI's top chemical weapons specialist, Dr. Stanley Goodspeed. Genius, fun guy, absolutely no field experience. The other guy is a man who has been under, he has been in U.S. prisons for something like 30 years at this point without a trial. He's disappeared. He's a mystery man. And that is, of course, X. British Special Forces agent John Mason, mm-hmm. who is now, of course, in his sixties. Yeah, so, um, he's uh, reading Sun Tzu for like the fiftieth time in his yeah. cell. <laughs> yeah, he's got all the books, all the prison books we see in movies. Yeah, <laughs> and what follows is a action-packed thrill ride as the heroes try and stop the rockets from going off in San Francisco. The cast, okay, it should be noted, this movie is directed by Michael Bay, his follow-up to Bad Boys, his second feature film. The cast is about as dynamic as a cast could get. Yeah. <laughs> like, I mean, like, This is maybe the best... It might be, like, in terms of just, like, depth, this might be the best cast we've covered for, like, a film in this... I think it might actually be better than Crimson Tide. It just, See, well, and there's so many guys. Well, this is also a hardcore dudes rock movie mm-hmm. as well, because in Crimson Tide, the dudes were not getting along. In The Rock, it's all about the dudes getting together to become friends, mm-hmm. like, buddies with each other. That's the only way they're going to stop anything. So the cast is as follows... Sean Connery is John Mason. Nicholas Cage is Dr. Stanley Goodspeed. Ed Harris is General Francis Hummel. Then, that's our big three. They're on the poster. Yeah. Then, though, listen to this. I'm going to take a deep breath. John Spencer is FBI Director Jim Womack. Yeah. <laughs> David Morse is Major Tom Baxter, the number two guy to Ed Harris. What a great actor. God tier mustache man William Forsythe is FBI Special Agent Paxton. Michael fucking Bean is the head of the SEAL team. He's like the sixth guy. It's crazy. Uh, <laughs> the lovely Miss Vanessa Marcel plays Carla, Nicholas Cage's uh, uh, unwed pregnant fiance. Catholic wife. Catholic wife. John C. McGinley is Captain Hendricks, one of the uh, General Hummel's guys. And oh, man. it's and John C. McGinley just made to be one of these guys. Gregory Sporleader is Captain Fry. Um, have you ever seen the movie Battle Royale? The ja- the Japanese um, Oh yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. 100%. So there's this wonderful moment in that where they're diving it's a movie about this. In the weird future, they make these classes fight to the death. It's great. It's awesome. Yeah, classic. <laughs> I love it. It's a fucking great movie. They should make you it. Thought, they should make it do. They should do it. If you thought Hunger Games should have been hard R, 
then battle royales probably for you. Um, the best part though is that the kids are all looking around and when they're divvying them up and they and then the teacher's like, Oh, we also have two transfer students. And they cut to the back and see like these older dudes who are like complete psychos. <laughs> and that's all I think about with these next two guys in this movie is like the transfer students on General Hummel's team because it's like the second they cut to score leader is Captain Fry and Candyman himself, Tony Todd, is Captain Darrow. You're like, ooh, these guys seem a little bit on the edge. Yeah, these guys are a little <laughs> funky. They seem a little too gung ho. A little too gung ho. Um, the great Bokeem Woodbine is Sergeant Crisp on Hummel's team. Uh, Danny Nucci, who we sung the praises of yeah! on the Crimson Tide episode, is on Michael Bean's SEAL team. Claire Forlani, the love interest to uh, Peanut Butter Swilling Angel of Death at one point in her career. <laughs> oh God, I forgot about that. <laughs> We've tied it back to Joe, folks. We've tied it back to Joe. Uh, appears as Jade Ange- Angelou, uh, Sean Connery's long-lost daughter that was conceived at a Led Zeppelin show. <laughs> Go figure. Um, there are so many heavy hitters. Xander Berkeley, one of our faves, oh, yeah, shows up for a one, one scene wonder. We're not going to make it. He gets great mm. lines like that. Yeah. Todd Luizzo, um, he's the other guy. Ugh. Todd Luizzo, who of course was one of Philip Seymour Hoffman's cronies in Scent of a Woman. Oh my gosh, yeah. At that point, also nearly balding. Uh, like, favorites upon favorites. So good. <laughs> Anthony, Clark, Anthony Clark shows up as a very memorable hairdresser. <laughs> he, like, I looked him up because I was like, oh, he's interesting. And then, like, he starred in a sitcom for six seasons. Uh, uh, Boston Common, Patrick, which I watched. <laughs> It's like oh he was so on, many... oh he was on Yes Dear as well. I watched yeah. Boston Common because I was like another guy in that that era of like the Nucci era as we'll call it that Don had like I had a real like I put a lot of stock that Anthony Clark was going to be a big deal. And he uh, was know. for like ten he, years apparently. He, you know he's probably still got all that sitcom money. Um, and then uh, Philip Baker Hall oh. shows up. He's got this <laughs> who. Makes him out and out of a mohill. Like, because he's as old Christ, he's as old as I am. I gotta get up three times a night to go take a piss. <laughs> See, like, love or hate Michael Bay, one thing that's always great about him is he's so, like, generous. He gives, like, all these all these guys, be they a, like, a, you know, an S-tier, a hugely successful star, or, like, a little tiny character actor that doesn't have a Wikipedia page. Like, he gives them, like, a little fun line. He gets, Everyone gets to have fun in this every, movie. Every single person I mentioned there has a moment in this movie. At the minimum. Yes! Sometimes two! Yeah. And this is what's missing, like... <sighs> they gotta figure out how to do this in the Marvel movies. They gotta figure out how to do this in the DC movies. Like, how do you... Where do you find time for this in those movies? Like, yeah, I mean, the the closest I can think of is I feel like Nolan, his movies yeah. tend to give you like, you know, because like you'll have like uh, these fun little performances from like uh, Ben Mendelsohn well, and you have like Rutger Hauer show up or um, you yeah, know, Tom, or Tom, Bar- Tom Berenger or Tom Wilkinson. Yeah, all these guys, you know, he's rambling about bread because Scarecrow. But even like, he has, like he brings in Eric Roberts for the Dark yes. Knight, you know, and um. They don't all need to be 35-year-old young hunks. 
is mm-hmm. where we're getting at. We can have there's a wide gamut of weird Americans that we can put yes, into these movies. They're still around. You know, you have Paul Walter Hauser just waiting on the sidelines. To be like a tech guy for yes. Thor. You know, like a computer expert for the Hulk it's, or something yeah, ha- like that. Have him play hardware in the Punisher TV show. Yeah. Cause like that's just like, yeah, like all the guys that are like weird like crazy people in the marvel things they sex him up because i think like they get like the other boyfriend and girls to play hardware in the punisher tv show yeah and that dude's a hunk that's that's crazy it should be wayne knight playing that character uh, yeah, no. yeah. <laughs> I, yeah where's william victor you know <laughs> yeah, yeah where is william victor get him out of cryos out of cryo sleep wake him up we need him <laughs> it's time to wake up victor we're going to engage victor um this, ca- this cast is absolutely totally stacked and so the only like alternate casting that i heard about was mm-hmm. that at one point they considered schwarzenegger to play stanley goodspeed which would have been um schwarzenegger's playing anybody it's mason yeah. that's the only character he could play in this movie is mm-hmm. and they the man they got for mason really is the only choice to play me no there's no one else I, yeah, yeah and like and and i'm not gonna lie like my curiosity is peaked i i would like to sneak into the alternate universe for arnold schwarzenegger just to like see some of the scenes that like uh cage does as short but but like have schwarzenegger because it's like i just can't imagine schwarzenegger playing uh-huh. such a um a character out of his element like he's never played he never plays someone really and when he's out of his element it's usually like more of a, a comedic like well, it's, it's like, like a kindergarten it's like, cop it's thing. like where he's where he's where he's like the fake harry tasker in true lies mm-hmm. you know that would be like stanley goodspeed is harry tasker basically mm. like who without any spy till skills you yeah know? exactly he's like in the jamie lee curtis role mm-hmm yeah. yeah, and the same way, and he like totally actually he gets even tougher. <laughs> like, like by the end, he's like full scale like superstar <laughs> hero. In this movie, he's, he's so... just like breaking Bookie Woodbine's skull like a well, melon. Like, <laughs> the um, I mean, uh, I'll talk about. I think the climax is one of the most exciting things still in movies when Jim Cavie Jim Caviezel's one of the pilots. Too. I don't know if you caught oh my that. God, I didn't catch that either. Yeah. That's it's, it's ludicrous. This is a movie with every guy. Yeah, but when it's like Cage and Connery versus Todd and Spore Leader and that Irish guy. <laughs> oh yeah. By the way, then, I'm Irish. <laughs> and the Cage is like in slow mo, crying, running out with the green smoke. It's like thrilling. It's absolutely thrilling. Yeah. Well, and then the thing too is like everything about this movie is so over the top. There's such a, it's very like you know you get the Sunday and the cre- whipped cream and the cherry because like people don't die in this movie. They get their legs get caught on fire and they fall a thousand feet. They get uh, skewered on poles like human kebab. Oh, they their skin being, melts af- up after being having a rocket fired at their gut. Even the sh- even the shootout with Hummel is incredibly bloody. Oh, it's nuts! I loved it. I loved it. Squibs everywhere. Yeah, it squibs everywhere. Well, it's just well, phenomenal. Then, yeah, well, and then like the the seal shootout too is like it was really really rough. 
Anyway, we should probably like yeah organize this a little bit. We're gonna we're just being like like, remember yeah (laughs) remember our favorite parts. It's like like the the Chris Farley show. Yeah, remember when you were the Beatles? Yeah, that was cool. (laughs) (laughs) Remember when uh, you were uh, skewered on a pole, Tony Todd? That was cool. Um, but there's this great story I read. Um, that was on the commentary track. Uh, that Bay said that um the Disney executives were a little uncomfortable with him and the mm. job he was doing on it. And so he was on the Disney lot going into a meeting one day and he bumped into Sean Connery, who was also, you may have noticed, an executive producer on this film. Mm-hmm. Connery was in like his golf wear and Connery's like, oh, where are you going? And Bay's like, I've got to go meet with these executives. And Connery asked if he could accompany him. And basically when they arrived in the conference room, all the executives' jaws dropped that Sean Connery had come in to back up Michael Bay. And Connery simply stood up and said he was being, he was doing a good job and he should be left alone. And uh, good. <laughs> that is like the dream. That is kind of like Yeah, to be well yeah. to be protected by your star like that is mm-hmm. a dream scenario. Especially when it's like a star that has like appeal. Like cuz it's like it'd be one thing if like your movie starred, I don't know, Timothy Chalamet and he went in to support you. It's another thing when like yeah, like Sean Connery is respected by those guys. And <laughs> based, based big part of course on Sean Connery's most iconic role, that of the original James Bond. Um and there's of course always been a massive conspiracy fan rumor here that I love and every time I watch the movie I buy just a little bit more <laughs> that under a different name John Mason is James Bond and John James Bond was captured by the US government doing one of a James Bond type thing and has been in US prison for 30 years waiting to do more cool James Bond stuff <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I think it like I think it works. I mean, and like you said, the the writers that Connery brought in, mm-hmm. those are Bond guys through and through. Yeah, and Mason, everything lines up like timeline one, like it all. Yeah, like totally adds up. The only thing, yeah, literally, yeah, literally, the only like uh like question mark in the puzzle is like the Led Zeppelin concert, but that yeah. just makes me want to see like the part of the mo- like a James Bond movie where he has to go undercover at a Led Zeppelin concert. Yeah, 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 like in Goldfinger, he ends up at a Zeppelin show or something like that. Yeah, I like it. I like it. So, Ed Harris, the great Ed Harris, has taken control of Alcatraz with his crew. Meanwhile, we get this amazing sequence after this happens. Oh, and I love this movie. I've said it before, but I love they set it up. This is what Hummel wants. Then they steal the VX rock gas and they drop one of the VX gas balls. So we as an audience know how powerful that shit is in the first five minutes of this movie. And you're like, okay, that's bad news. I get it. Yeah. I don't need to be shown more. This guy's face melted. <laughs> you know? Yeah, he is slowly turning into goop. It's not it, fun. It's really like, it's weird to say for a Michael Bay movie and Jen laughed at me last night. I was like, it's really strong screenwriting. <laughs> I was like... <laughs> but also, the very next scene that follows also is amazing. So we get to see Dr. Stanley Goodspeed in his environment. He's getting Beatles albums. He's making weird domino things in the office he's kind of bored but he's he's smart and fun and charming and everything you kind of want from your leading man Mm -hmm. 
they get called down to check in on the weird package that showed up. It's him, his, Todd Luiso, and Xander Berkeley, among others, are there. Turns out it is gas. And it's going off, and it's there's also it's attached to C4, like yeah. really doubling down on it. And Cage is like working his ass, like he's doing a Tony Scott level, like 360 shot around all of them. There's um, the shit, the water from the showers is coming down on them. There's smoke and everything. Xander Berkeley's like looking directly as an audience, we're not gonna make it, you know. <laughs> And Todd Luiso is doing the funniest stuff. Like he has to take this like ad- adrenaline needle and fire it into his heart. He's like, you want me to shove this into my heart? Are you fucking crazy? So that's that's like that's the big touch. Like it can't just be like a pill or something. It has to be a needle into the fucking heart. And he's reacting appropriately. Yes, that would, like, su- that would suck. That would suck. That'd be the worst. I'd be so unhappy if I had to do that. What I love about this scene, though, is Cage is cool under pressure, and he disarms the bomb and stops it from happening. Mm-hmm. So now we as an audience know Cage is capable. He's not just a nerd. So anything that follows in the movie, we're like, I think Cage has a shot to get out of this thing. Yeah, well, And it's like such a great seed that's planted in your head about who he is as a guy. Well, and it, it, I think Cage is just one of the very few actors that can juggle vulnerability and, you know, top of your intelligence excellence. Like, there's just something he can be... He is able to play someone that is, like, seemingly fallible, but also can be, like, you know... Oh very competent like there's just there's something to him that he i don't think a lot of people can like kind of meet that midpoint where like because i think he also has like an unthreatening masculine confidence damn yeah that's that's a hundred because it's like yeah because he's like he's masculine and he's confident Mm. but he's also not like he's not toxic about it yeah yeah he lacks like a toxicity like he's not like an asshole which i appreciate he's like a goofball i think that's yeah yeah it's hugely important because mm-hmm. of how things end up and the because within this movie is essentially like a buddy comedy too mm-hmm. which makes it even more fun so they the pentagon is all up in our all up in it they've heard from uh francis hummel his demands and stuff uh Womack, fbi director <sighs> Gets, he's like, we can't bring. There's only well, there is one guy who, you know, <laughs> that's my John Spencer. Um, so who is, craggly. <laughs> who's ever like knows the ins and outs of Alcatraz because Alcatraz has not been a working prison, and of course, that's the one guy who ever escaped. John Mason, played by Sean Connery. We're introduced to John Mason. He's got this awesome long hair wig, and um, they William Forsyth and and um, Nicholas Cage both offer Mason a deal that. Uh, Spencer has no intention of keeping of freedom for Mason if Mason can help lead the Navy SEALs into Alcatraz and find the penetration point, basically, mm. to get them on there. Maybe Navy SEALs, of course, led by Michael Bean. Yeah. 
Also, there is a moment there where um, they do a good job of illustrating that John Mason's like the real deal because William Forsythe he uh, uh, gives uh, Sean Connery uh, in a uh, you know in a joking, cynical fashion like quarter like you know John Mason's like what are you gonna give me? And then William Forsythe is like here here here's penny for quarter, your thoughts or whatever. Make a phone call. Call your lawyer. Yeah. You're going back to jail. That's it. <laughs> exactly. Damn, you see, you you love this movie. Yeah, well, because it's my favorite line of the movie, which is like no one's favorite line Jen, that Jen and I quote all the time is in this exact same scene. So he uses <laughs> the quarter to cut a hole in the two-way glass. So he breaks it with his puts his head in. Michael Bay from the other side of the glass does this massive push in on Connery, and he delivers the line of the film. Womack! I should have known, you son of a bitch. <laughs> So, I would be so afraid if someone we did that. talked about naming one of our cats Womack based upon that. Just so we can go, Womack! <laughs> Womack! Every time it, like, you know, spills yeah. a Should bag of flour. Shit on the floor, you son of a bitch! <laughs> um, <laughs> and so he... Connery gets to go to this fancy hotel in San Francisco. He gets a shave. He sings, if you're going to San Francisco, be sure to wear some flowers in your hair. And he orders some room service. But it's a big ruse because the FBI guys are hungry for snacks. And um, <laughs> I love that, like, oh, snacks. They always fall for snacks. It's a yeah. good rule of thumb. And so Connery gets his cool haircut. He gets his cool suit from Anthony Clark has given him a haircut. And then Connery launches his attack he throws Womack tied up but throws him off the roof tears his arm out of the socket Cage tries to put a gun on him but Cage is not very good at any of this Connery escapes and it leads to maybe our first true set piece which is a San Francisco smack him up car chase where Connery has stolen a Hummer Nicholas Cage has stolen a high yellow Ferrari and going all over San Francisco destroying. It's like Michael Bay made a list. He's like, what are some San Francisco things we could drive through? Literally drive it's, through. <laughs> what are some classic? And it's like one of those movies too where like I love Bay because he's so like don't oh, fucking put an old lady in the middle of the street. He'll do the lady. they got the guys who are playing street basketball who use wheelchairs. Oh. They've got um you practically th- you expect two guys to be carrying a pane of glass yes, across that's the street right. like, at some point. <laughs> he's They drive through a truck carrying water jugs, which looks great. Oh, and man. all leads up to this wonderful guy who I don't know who the guy is who they cast as the um, trolley driver. I like to think that's just a real trolley driver. That's yeah. my, that's my, uh, who's given a tour of cannon. San Francisco. And then all of a sudden, the Hummer comes through. The Ferrari comes through. Gets knocked off the rails. Everyone has to jump off. He's furious that he has to jump off. Bay not only derails the trolley, it explodes and gets sent like 30 feet in the air. It's fucking awesome. <laughs> no one's done anything that cool. Like It's like see, because it's like, it's one thing for the trolley to explode, but to have it physically like lifted Mm-hmm. And this so... is the this is the true pre CGI days. So they did blew, you can tell they absolutely blew this thing up. Yeah, and they just had like seven cameras on it and hope for the best. Because that's the thing. It's like all oh, so much shit nowadays is just yeah. It's just some guy like a it's like a computer. 
like CGI can be fine. It can be good. But like, man, it's just a bummer. We're never going to have that again. Like this is yeah, like-, like shutting down a major intersection in a major American city to blow half of it up, including blowing up a trolley and Nicholas Cage's yellow Ferrari. Yes. <laughs> and Cage steals this the great exchange between him and the San Francisco hippie dude. The guy, uh, the guy goes, whoa, just write your Ferrari. Cage goes, wasn't mine. And then he, neither is this. And he steals the guy's bike. That's <laughs> oh, so good. I love how there's just no uh, no retribution or any consequences for anything these two guys do in this, no in this moment. That because it also shows, though, the beauty of it, that Cage is not a total pushover in John Mason's eyes. The cage has got a little bit more fire and spunk to him. He can mm-hmm. take a punch. Mason, though, is looking for his long lost daughter who happens to live in Los a- in San Francisco named Jade Angelou. What <laughs> a great name. One of the great, great name. cinema names. Played by Claire Filani of the who was, of course, in Meet Joe Black. And um, they have a very odd scene where she talks about how she he met her mother at a Led Zeppelin show. And, you know, both Patrick and I agree. The thought of even picturing Sean Connery at a Led Zeppelin show <laughs> seems insane. Yeah. And I um, ramble on. Yeah. No, ramble on. <laughs> Don't mind if I do. I'd like to hear deeper cuts than Stairway. shoe. <laughs> and Cage is smart enough, though, that he figures out that Connery might have someone he's looking for and he tracks them down and he lies to Jade. Instead of saying Connery is a fugitive, that he says Connery is working with them, which makes him look good in the eyes of his daughter, which Connery likes. No one is particularly happy, though, but they actually they have bigger fish to fry. So their destruction of multiple city blocks in San Francisco is quickly forgotten. By yeah, it's like, eh, it's fine. It's okay. It's fine. No one was hurt. It's okay. <laughs> was it terrifically exciting and funny and awesome, though, to the audience? Absolutely. Oh, yeah. <laughs> It is so awesome, though, this entire thought that, like, that's this car chase is so intricate with so many explosions and so many things going on. In 90% of other action movies, it would be the concluding action sequence of the movie. It would be mm-hmm. the climax scene. This one, it's a tease. It's a appetizer. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> An, <laughs> An aperitif. An <laughs> aperitif. So Cage discovers he has to go to Alcatraz. To disarm the bombs. He's not thrilled by that. It should also be noted Cage has a girlfriend uh, played by Vanessa Marcel, who's Carla, who is with with his with child, but she's upset about it because she's Catholic, so she's demanding <laughs> that they get married. He invites her to San Francisco for a romantic weekend before knowing that San Francisco is under under attack from a crazed general of VX for gas rockets. Um, she go, comes to San Francisco though. And now is in the line of fire, which gives another good screenwriting thing, Cage, even more reason to be successful upon his trip to Alcatraz with the SEAL team and Mason. Mason gets in because Mason's like, it's all in my head, the map of Alcatraz. And Michael Bean, I like Michael Bean in this movie because he's like, I don't care. I just want to get it done. Like, I don't care who comes. You come. If you're good at it, I'll take you. <laughs> we just got to go. <laughs> we just got to take care of these guys. And he loves General Hummel. He knows his biography right and left. Um, yeah, he's my best friend. Yeah. 
there's this fantastic sequence where um the seals and cajun connery um jump out of helicopters and dive underwater and go under the go under the rigging of alcatraz which is like seems like it's like multiple football fields long of pipes and underground layers and so forth connery knows them all though don't worry about it <laughs> yeah it's insane it's uh, well and then like the place they end up at i love this crazy furnace room yeah and so connery has to time this thing in this furnace room he rolls through all this fire and stuff like that and all the navy seals like this guy's rat <laughs> it's just so i love that like there's just like a it's like in Galaxy Quest, where it's like, why are the rooms like so like antagonistic? Yeah. I don't. It just, it just, I, I just, I love it. It's so well, silly. It's like, it rules. Um, like Lopan's lair in uh, Big Trouble in Little China, <laughs> like all the underground <laughs> stuff in there. <laughs> it's like, who made it this way? It's fantastic. So <laughs> Connery, they think he's bailed, but then he comes around. He opens the locked door, and Michael Bay does another push in on him, and he goes, "Welcome to the Rock." trailer line right there <laughs> oh should be noted too that after cage's ferrari is destroyed in the earlier chase cage stands up and bay does the exact same shit just got for real shot from bad boys on cage it's awesome a second time <laughs> <laughs> it still has it still has spunk folks yeah it looks really cool um this movie looks so good it's like it's sunset all the time here it looks yeah. great like right out of the to tony scott school if you like but um so seals get in but they've all hummel and his team have rigged the place beyond belief mm. the seals enter in the um was it the bat the shower room yes they come up through this gate and then they realize they're already completely surrounded by hummel's mm. team and hummel tries to negotiate michael bean won't negotiate with him they start screaming at each other Hummel's guys, though, this is the first indication they're a bit on edge. And um, it's a classic action movie thing where somebody accidentally like knocks over a well, uh, poorly placed stone or brick or something. Yeah, causes a little bit of noise. All hell breaks loose. It's been made to clear to us because Hummel's team has the advantage of being up high with the barrier around them that the seals are sitting ducks. They are indeed sitting ducks. Michael Bean goes down, all of his team goes down, and then Danny Nucci, who's been tasked with keeping a close eye on Connery, he's down below with Connery and Cage. They have not got they are the only three who have not gone up into the um showers. The Cage and Connery are like, Don't don't go up there, man. Don't go up yeah. Don't go up Bad there. News. Danny Nucci's like, No, I'm doing it, I'm doing it. He goes up, he immediately gets popped right in the dome. Like yeah. immediately. Dead. Bummer. Terrible. Yeah, great, great, like, uh, immediate jump scare moment where, like, he goes up, he's immediately, like, you know, dead, comes mm -hmm. down, you see his scared face. And it's with a, good a big moment. old busted head open. And, yeah. But it's also really good because Hummel is screaming, don't, don't, don't. And you can tell, like, he doesn't really want to kill anyone at all. Like, yes. he's, like, really adamantly. And it, it's a real testament. And I think the, the silent all-star of this movie is Ed Harris. Because this... And like what we saw from the Simpson discussion with the screener Hensley, 
everyone seemed to be on the right same page with Francis Hummel that he could not be one note. He could mm -hmm. not be just like a mustache twirling bad guy. And because of that, it adds a depth to this movie that it almost doesn't deserve. It's, <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think the thing too is Ed Harris is such a unique, he's one of the few actors that can be menacing, but also like sympathetic and empathetic and like <laughs> He has sorrowful eyes. Like there's just like he can be um there is he can be just a stone hard cold badass and he can also be just very vulnerable. He can he has a, there's a vulnerability to him that not a lot of a lot of other heavies don't have. He's um he's one of the very best actors in America. Yeah. Living actors. I mean, you know, and we've talked a bit about a Harris bracket. Let us know. If you would like to see that, because I'd like to see it. I want to know what wins. Yeah. yeah I got to think, like, I mean, this is in the mix, but Truman Show and Apollo 13 immediately are the ones. And Ooh. Paul, like, like, screamed to me. Yeah. But I, I mean, love him. I love him in Truman Show. He's so good as Pitoff. Yeah. And, and, and also, don't, hey, don't discount the abyss. Yeah. Speaking of which, yeah, you're absolutely right. Um, he's so fucking good. And we already know he's like in this place. Like, I can't believe this. But we are kind of heading into the next stage of this movie. The guys back home, Forsyth and uh, Spencer, they're like, oh, shit. Are we, <laughs> are they, we're fucked. <laughs> Meanwhile, Connor and Cage are in the sewers below Alcatraz. Like, uh, what do we do? Gulp. <laughs> and we hear that I think and Connery's like I'll tell you what I'm doing I'm getting the hell out of here <laughs> Connery's <laughs> like in a veil and Cage has to talk him into it and then they hear the voices down below John C. McGinley gets sent in with some crew and Lisa's insane like um, Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom yes like cart chase on tracks through the thing and Connery sets John C. McGinley on fire, which is incredible. It is just like, yeah, like the, the dwarven mines of Moria are under Alcatraz. Yeah. It's so crazy. And like the fact that like John C. McGinley's like legs are on fire for like a minute. There's mm -hmm. just a minute he, of him like. He's still trying to fist fight with Connery. Yes, he's still trying to duke it out, even though like, and it's so funny. The fire never spreads up any further. It's just on mm -hmm. the leg area, but it just it just rules. You don't see that so type terrific. of so yeah. terrific. And uh, they win that battle, though. Dispatch a few of the bad guys, and Connery and Cage, like Cage, like basically is like, you know, your daughter's in trouble. Like this, like this is all bad news. So let's go find some rockets. Um, <laughs> and this leads to the. Immortal line where they're they've decided to go in. They've got some guns, and Connery goes, "Are you? Let's make sure you you're prepared for this." And Cage goes, "I'll do my best." And Connery <laughs> goes, "Your best." Losers whine about doing their best. Winners go home and fuck the prom queen. And Cage cocks his gun and goes, "Carla was the prom queen." And you're like, "Hell yeah, dudes, dudes, we <laughs> <being> dudes." <laughs> Yeah, these two dudes are about to have a fun time. Yeah, they're you know, it's gonna be hard. It's gonna be hard. But it's gonna be fun. <laughs> <laughs> and so we're counting down though to Hummel's um first kind of like, hey, if you don't give me this money, 
I'm going to fire one of these rockets. Mm-hmm. And um, people are getting kind of itchy about it as Cage and Connery run around and dispatch bombs and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and basically, Cage and Connery, though, end up being captured. They're not killed, but they get put in the cells. Meanwhile, and Connery immediately knows how to get out, which is really funny, but we get the <laughs> great, <laughs> I take pleasure in gutting you, boy. Sequence from Nicolas Cage. (laughs) But meanwhile, everyone is like telling Hummel, in particular, uh, Fry and Darrow, Tony Todd and Gregory Spore, um, Spore leader, are like, we gotta know, they gotta look, they gotta know that we are for real. And Hummel's like, Mm. okay, get the rockets ready. And Hummel's like, they do this great push on head of Harris fire. And so they fire. And David Morse, we have not even, pre- oh my God, there's so many dudes in this movie. I haven't talked about how good David Morse is in this movie. Um, who's Ed Harris's number two guy. He's like looking at Harris and the rockets in the air cut to Forsyth and John Spencer, like rockets in the air. <laughs> and Connery and Cage are like run to the windows. And it's like, oh my God. And Ed Harris jumps on his computer. Sends the rocket over the football stadium, football game in progress. The rocket goes into the ocean. Ed Harris purposely diverts it. Tony Todd and Gregory Sporleader are like, fuck, man. What happened there? And Ed Harris is like, I'm not going to do it. Yeah, <laughs> I, I don't want to kill, kill 60,000 people. Yeah. It's great, right? That it yes. just, like has this like it gives the character more to do. It makes mm. him more interesting. It makes him more than one note. It makes him one of the best characters of this kind of movie. He, there's it's, like a yeah. It adds like a it adds a conflict that this character needs. It because it, mm. it like yeah. This movie we'd still be talking about it in a good light probably, but it just wouldn't be as memorable if he was like a run of the mill crazy person, a la Passenger Fifty Seven. Passenger 57, Con Air, Under Siege. I mean, like, it's fun, but this is this is what makes this movie great. Yeah, this is, this is what adds the timeless element to this film. Yeah. And so um, Cage and Connery are, have made their way to the same room so they can watch what's going on. I have this impression, like, Connery and Cage, like, I wish they had done this close-up of them looking at each other, like, what the fuck? Like when this, all this goes starts going down, so Fry and Darrow, our two mercenary guys, are like, they're like, what the fuck, man? We we were gonna do this, and they're like a little too enthusiastic about yeah, this thing. They're, and, they're going off on him. Yeah, and like really, and David Morse is like, you you treat him with respect, and oh, Bokeem Woodbine is in there too, which is great. Yeah, and, and he's like he's funny because he also appears kind of reticent, but then yeah. he gets on board pretty quickly. <laughs> And Tony Todd makes it really clear he because then Ed Harris goes, "We failed. Mission's over. We're done. Let's get out of here." Just mm-hmm. very um, extraordinarily rational for a bad guy in one of these movies. <laughs> yes, he's like, you know what? We didn't do the thing. Let's didn't call work. it a g- game. Let's yeah, let's leave with our lives. We can do yeah. this still. <laughs> um, the Fry and Daryl are like, no, we want our money. And we are taking over. I'm relieving you of your command. And Cage and Connor are like, whoa. 
<laughs> yeah, they're like, what the hell? And then we get an old-fashioned standoff. All the military guys pull their guns on each other at the same time. Um, Ed Harris has his gun to Bokeen Woodbine's throat. Tony Todd and um, Gregory's for later have their guns on Ed Harris and David Morse stand there sweaty as hell like Vigo. Um, and he's like, it's been an honor serving with you, Colonel or general or yeah. And he puts his gun to Ed Harris's head. What a fucking betrayal. Ooh. David Morse is one of those actors that's, I love him in every single time he shows up in a movie or show. Yeah, he he's like, well, he's like, um, who's the guy who plays the in Sling Blade? He's like the other, not 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 Billy Bob Thornton, but the guy who's in like that uh, asylum with him. Um, uh, and he's like, oh golly, what is, is it? JT JT Walsh, right? Yes, JT Walsh. He's like yeah. JT Walsh for like. He is just, you know, this guy's going to be evil. You know, he's going to be a scumbag and he can like, but he can also like play. He can also be very soft spoken. Like, mm-hmm. have you ever seen the movie? He was in like this basketball movie. Like this, his first movie was this film starring, I think, John Savage. Oh, Inside Moves. Yes. Inside yeah. Moves. And he's such an interesting, that movie itself is kind of middling. But he is such an interesting character in that movie, and he's, he he pl- plays this like you know guy who kind of could be a basketball player but isn't. Um, he's like he's he's a lot of fun. He's also great as George Washington in the John Adams miniseries. He's, a, just, uh, uh, he's, yeah. he's he's this the evil scientist in Twelve Monkeys. Yeah, the bad uh, the bad guy in Disturbia. Like he he can like do it really, all. He's really good in Disturbia. Like, yeah, oh, easily the best part of Disturbia, yeah. some would say. He's in, yeah. he's in he's in Dancer in the Dark, the Lars von Trier movie. Yeah, I, and it's like he's just another one of those guys too, where he's like Ed Harris, where he's so good at playing menacing, but he can also like he can also has like vulnerability to him as well. He can be like he's very soft. There's a oh, soft spokenness to him. I appreciate. He's got that great scene in the Hurt Locker after Jeremy Renner um, takes out the car bomb and. He like comes up and he sums up like Jeremy Renner's entire movie. He's like, "You're a wild man, aren't you?" It's like, <laughs> like he's like, "You're cool, man. I like you." It's like, he's so good. Yeah, it's just man. He it's crazy. He hasn't been like nominated for an Oscar yeah, or something. Yeah, that guy's he's just an actor's actor. I mean, he's just yeah. you know you know he's gonna he you know he's gonna bring it, but he kind of it's a swerve because the second later he swings his gun out on the mercenaries. He's still yep. with Hummel, of course. Mercenaries, though, they have superior firepower. Hummel shoots Bokeen Woodbine in the neck. It's brutal. Kills him. But then the mercenaries open fire. David Morse killed almost immediately. And um, Hummel severely wounded. Connery and Cage run in and they pull Hummel out of the firing. Hummel is just covered in blood, and they have one more rocket left to disable. Cage like, where's the rocket? Where's the rocket? And Hummel, Ed Harris is doing the Lord's work. He's like, what have I done? It's just like, so good. <laughs> uh... So good. And Hummel, the final time we see him, he's like sliding down the wall dead, covered in blood, and it's terrific. And we've got a big swerve. He is no longer the leading villain of the mm. movie for the climax of this movie. It's Tony Todd and Greg's for leader. And we, 
get some incredible shit. Connery and Cage split up. Connery is throwing dudes, snipers off of. And the way the music and the editing just like heats up and things get bigger and bigger and bigger over this last 15 minutes of this movie. And it's like so I've seen this movie. I told you when we opened this, I've seen this movie 30 times. I've seen this movie a ton of times. Yeah. Like I since 1996, I've seen this movie so many times. We got it immediately when it came out on video. We watched it all the time. I own two copies of it currently. Like <laughs> you've spent a le- week of your life watching this film. Yeah. If it pops up on like Hulu out of nowhere. I will look at Jim and be like, man, I should put this on. <laughs> like, like it is a go-to. I love it so much. And this ending, though, is so good and so exciting. Mm. It's just like everything is coming together. They're running all over the island. We're running out of time. We know that Tony Todd and Spur Leader are going to fire the rocket. Yeah. Like, there is no question anymore. They're unhinged lunatics. Yeah, they're going to do they're it. They're yeah. lunatics. So, Connery and Cage is like, we got to do this thing. Also, Simultaneously, the president has called in a firestorm launch on blowing up Alcatraz, essentially. All the hostages, Connery and Cage, dead. It's like he it's, Michael Bacon, he can do a hat on a hat, but he makes it look good. Like he's wearing three hats, and somehow you're like, damn, you look great in those three yeah. hats. <laughs> it's like you're wearing like 17 jackets, and it's like 90 degrees outside, and I still buy it. I love this man like, in his 20 jackets. So, like, how they're dispatched, it's amazing. So they end up in Cage has got the fi- Cage gets into the final room with the rocket, he pulls out the green balls. Mm-hmm. with the the vx gas oh and they're so fragile and it's so exciting how fragile they are because he's like the, covered in sweat and like pulling them out each time it's so good and the ultimate like one of the few props for like if i saw that prop on like ebay or something mm-hmm. like i would want to buy like a a go like a, a green ball like that it, i would love to have one of those one of the very best weapons in movies i can think of yeah um so cage pulls it out tony todd shows up and cage has got it and he's like you know what this shit is and tony todd pulls out a crocodile dundee knife and goes you know what this shit is and you're like oh he doesn't even care anymore like he was did he not see the guy's face melt and then tony todd steps in front of the rocket that no longer has the um the poison in it yep yes <laughs> and cage this was you think this was a tarantino it's like a 50 50 Tarantino. Yeah, I think so. so he's like, Yeah. You like, you like, you listen to music. Do you like Elton John? I don't listen to soft ass shit. Well, he's got a song called Rocket Man. It's about you. You're the Rocket Man. What? There's <laughs> the rocket to Tony Todd. Tony Todd gets launched right out the window. Rockets in the air. Cut back to Womack. <laughs> All rockets in the air. It's in the bay. It's in the bay. (laughs) Tony Todd flies all the way, like almost across Alcatraz, it seems. Yeah, this isn't enough. This isn't enough. enough, (laughs) This is a Michael Bay movie, folks. It's not enough. He falls down. He lands on a fucking fence post. Goes right through him. (laughs) It fails him. It's just so good. And Tony's like, "Eh." But then there's snipers on the other roof firing on Cage. Cage is carrying the, the green balls. One of them falls off the strand. 
you get this amazing slow motion of Cage like diving for it and catching it, and it's oh, like man. it's so exciting, it's so thrilling. Also, also a th- another uh, connection I never thought we'd make on this podcast: the sniper in that scene, he's Steve Harris, who played Queen Latifah's shady ex boyfriend in Bringing Down the House. <laughs> Incredible! This awesome. movie's a gem. But then Connery shows up, blasts Steve Harris in the back of the head, flips him off the balcony. He takes a bunt tumble into a bunch of shit and dies. And yes. Connery gives Cage the thumbs up. And Cage is like, got the green ball. He's like, whoo, Jesus. Cage pockets the green ball. But then fucking Spore Leader shows up. He starts firing on Cage. Cage does a slow motion jump off the top of this thing, off the top of this lighthouse thing. It looks awesome. It's incredible. Yeah. And he has that green. It's so it's so good. Yeah. Cage, and so Cage and and Spurleader's doing the, the great bad guy stuff. It's you and me, pal. Like yeah. all that kind of thing. <laughs> totally unhinged. He's yeah, just... totally unhinged. Yeah. Him and Cage are going this big ass fist fight, throwing each other through windows and walls. But we know. He's a mercenary and Cage is like science man. So Cage can't beat him in a fist fight. Mm-hmm. He's he's choking Cage out. Cage remembers though <laughs> the one last option he has. Cage reaches into his pocket and gives the audience exactly what we have wanted the entire movie. He blasts Sporleader right in the mouth with the green slug with the green ball. <laughs> Sporleader immediately so melting. It's face he's like, melting. oh, this doesn't taste good. Cage runs away. <laughs> We learned from the beginning of the movie the only way to be, for this to, to get away from this thing is the adrenaline shot to the heart. Cage has to do it. Cage slams himself with the needle. He goes down. He's shaking. Then he looks out and the fucking Air Force is coming in with their jets to bomb yeah, Alcatraz. This guy who's like worried about his skin melting off yeah. who, just, who just inserted a, a needle into his heart. His heart. Has to save the day again. We learned earlier the only way to let the FBI and the military everybody know that the the threat has been averted is to fire off these green flares. So Cage, slow motion. The music is swirling. They cut back to Womack and they do a zoom on William Forsythe. God help them. Cage's girlfriend's crying on the couch and like John Spencer's like comforting her. <laughs> like the most, the least comforting man. The planes are flying in, going under the Bay Bridge and the, under the Golden Gate Bridge. Cage in slow motion runs out with the green smoke, drops to his knees, and he's like screaming his head off. He's crying. I'm crying because it's so exciting. <laughs> the Hans Zimmer score is like peaking at this yeah, point. This is peak Zimmer. Like, yeah, like the endorphins are being released in your it's, brain right now. Yeah, you're like, this is uh-uh. the, wasn't, how old is I? 96. Oh god, fourteen. Perfect. Yeah. <laughs> oh no. Yeah. Like, <laughs> so <laughs> at this this point, I'm leaning over to my dad. In the movie theater, like, this is the best movie I've ever seen in my entire life. Yeah. <laughs> like, <laughs> and, and, and have the guys at Sight and Sound seen this? I know exactly. <laughs> oh shit! <laughs> Thinking twice on Vertigo. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, eight and a half. Yeah, I know. I'm just on the <laughs> saw the goddamn rock. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so then William Forsythe puts on these gets these gigantic military grade binoculars. 
green smoke, green smoke. They see him through the binoculars. I love the long shot of like the half dead Nicolas Cage, like waving the green smoke. <laughs> they get it off. Caviezel, though, accidentally launches one of the rockets, blows up part of the island. Cage is like blown all the way out into the bay. Are they okay? Who knows? Cage is underwater. Behind him swims up Sean Connery. Pulls him out of the water. Man. Best friends for life? I think so. I think yeah. so. Yeah. They're hanging out. They're hanging out yeah. after. They're going to a Led Zeppelin concert. Yeah, well, they're both like, Connery's like, you know what, Goodspeed? You're, you rule. And you know what, Mason? You also rule. <laughs> <laughs> Best friends. Best friends. Best friends. They do a little pinky thing. <laughs> so... I feel sweaty just describing it like I do after I watch this movie every time. I'm like, wow, what a time. They get on the wire. Okay, just like everything's been, terrorists have been stopped. All of them dead. No more rockets. Bullseye. And everyone's like, nice. That's good. <laughs> nice. Good stuff, dude. And then John Spencer gets on the line. He's like, where's Mason? Because <laughs> he's still pissed at Mason for heaven knows what. And Connery and Cage give each other a look, and Cage goes, he's dead. Come pick me up. And Sean Connery loves it, because Sean Connery can go live his life yeah. somewhere, and he can escape, and we know he can leave Alcatraz because he knows how. Um, he gives, though, a little note to Nicolas Cage. Some coordinates, if you will. Yeah, you know, check it out. Maui yeah. can wait, right? Something like that. <laughs> like, oh, I mean, it's this is in Kansas. It's kind of weird. Out of Kansas is kind of weird. Kids like, huh? Mason, is this what I think? But Mason's gone into the night, into the day, wherever he's gone. No. The the FBI shows up. They get good speed. Good speed tells um, William Forsythe that Mason was vaporized. William Forsythe gives him a annoying grin, like. Okay. We'll <laughs> him, yeah, we'll let him be vaporized. That's fine. yeah, we'll let him be vaporized. Womack is like vaporized. What is that possible? <laughs> no, what can happen? I'm a scientist. <laughs> and they take off. We cut to a little bit later. Cage and um, Vanessa, Marcel, Carla are married. They're in Kansas. They go to where the coordinates are, and they discover it's all of the state secrets that Sean Connery had stolen. You know, 40 years prior and hidden here. And the final line of the movie is Cage looking at the microphone going, hey, do you want to know who killed JFK? <laughs> cut of cut them driving down the track, swelling music, and a title card. The first title card before the credits hits the screen, and it says, in loving memory of Don Simpson. Man. This movie was released on June 7th, 1996. Don Simpson died January 19th, 1996, five months before the release of this film. The final budget on this movie was $75 million. It's on the screen. You can see it. Yes. Yeah, it's not, it is not MIA whatsoever. Oh, I should note, it's like my favorite action movie soundtrack. It like I love I love Hans Zimmer's score to this movie. He's yeah, it's like the this is like the peak Zimmer of this era. It is for sure bombastic. Um, the Rock grossed a total of 134 million in the U.S. and Canada, 201 million elsewhere for a worldwide total of 335 million dollars. It was the seventh highest grossing movie 
in the U.S. in 96 and the fourth highest worldwide. Wow. By any account, a blockbuster. <laughs> like an absolute blockbuster smash success. On Rotten Tomatoes, 68%. Disagree. <laughs> As you could tell. A little low. A little hard, low. Hard disagree. Yeah. <laughs> uh, critical Wait, 68 out of 68? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you going on a scale of 68 here? Yeah. <laughs> 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 uh, for visceral thrills, it can't be beat. Just don't expect The Rock to engage your brain. Who fucking cares? <laughs> Eat shit, nerd. Yeah, I'm wedging yeah. that guy at Rotten Tomatoes that made that up. I, I know. It's like, what you, who, who are you, you loser? <laughs> yeah, I'm sorry this isn't fucking Reds. Fuck I off. Know, I know. Shit, man. <laughs> I didn't fall asleep on this movie. Um Audiences, though, gave it an A on Cinema Score because they were like, that movie rocks. Uh, Ebert. Explosion good. 3.5 out of 4 stars. Praising it as a first-rate slam-bang action thrower with a lot of style and no little humor. Ebert. Spawn on. Todd McCarthy Variety gave it a positive review. Commenting. Commenting. The yarn has its share of gaping holes and jaw-dropping improbabilities, but director Michael Bay sweeps them all aside with his never-take-a-breath pacing. Richard Corliss of Time expressed favorable opinions as well. Slick, brutal, and almost human, this is a team spirit action movie Mission Impossible should have been. <laughs> hey, no need to drop a little negativity Brian De Palma's way. His Mission Impossible, guess what, also rules in a different way. Yeah, it's a different type of movie. The Rock won several minor awards. <laughs> I like that. <laughs> Uh, including Best On Screen Duo at the MTV Movie Awards for Cajun Connery. And he was nominated for one Oscar Academy Award for Best Sound. Yeah. You know, I would put editing in there. Thought about yeah. that. Or even cinematography, I'd throw that in there. Um, Yeah, yeah, I agree. And oh, we should note the cinematographer is John Schwartzman. Uh, the film, of course, <laughs> famously selected for as uh, part of the Criterion Collection, which has gotten a little grief over the years, but I think we mentioned on our last episode, and I'll say it again now, um, I disagree. I think it belongs in the Criterion Collection completely. It is a perfect example of what it is. And if the Criterion's goal is to release perfect examples of each kind of cinema in the history of cinema, then a Hollywood blockbuster action movie does need representation and what better movie than the rock to do so yeah i think it's kind of like one of those things too where like i almost like imagine the criterion collection is like a weird vault that like if aliens ever visited earth and they needed to like to know like peak culture like you know these are like the movies that kind of demonstrate like the potential of humanity or whatever you need to show them the rock like i think well, that's I think, like a um... What is interesting about the Criterion Collection, we don't need to go too far into this because this is a bit of a digression, but um, mm -hmm. the Sight and Sound Top 100 Movies list was released today. And I think mm. it's extraordinarily clear that in the last 10 years, the cultural impact among film highbrow film watchers and critics of what goes into the Criterion Collection and what does not go into the Criterion Collection is incredibly clear based upon the totals of the sight and sound film poll this time around it yes. is it is the criterion collection uh, and i don't know how I feel is that, that yeah i know 
is that it, you know, as someone who owns a lot of Criterion Blu-rays and loves Criterion, I have no problem with them at all. No, they're great. Like, and they do it, and I think they do a genuine good service. Like, you know, finding these movies, maintaining their relevance, et cetera, et cetera. I do not believe though they should be considered the be all end all. They should not no. be the only arbiter of this thing. There should be more curiosity than just saying, "Well, Criterion put it out; it must be good." Yeah. Um, no. Uh, yeah. Despite the fact that every one of those movies on that science down list are good, there's no question <laughs> like, about that. Like they're great at curating, but they're just one source. Exactly. Exactly. And you know, if I mean, you could turn to companies like vinegar syndrome or severin who do not release the art house movies in the same vein but are doing the lord's work when it comes to insane weird underseen genre pictures from all over the world that are giving movie truly unseen movies you know a real look and i think you just need to um you know they are doing great stuff, but they are not the only thing. Yeah, in the world. and I think it's yeah, and I think it's just like it's like varying your diet. It's having an open mind. It's mm-hmm. um, yeah, and there's a specific type of movie that Criterion's always going to play, and mm-hmm. those movies are necessary. And I think a lot of people don't watch enough. Like I don't, I don't think enough people watch those kind of movies. Mm-hmm. But uh, yeah, you gotta like yeah, do a vinegar syndrome. Do, go. You know, look at more international cinema. See what, you know, films are playing in like India or Japan or, you know, Eastern Europe or whatever. Yeah. yeah. And don't, you know, curate it for yourself. And if it ends up the same, it ends up the same. But don't just be lazy and go go off of what they do. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Just be, explore. Yeah. And despite the fact that they are doing amazing work, and I would never say anything to disparage them as a general, but I think some people's reaction to them is the issue we're talking about here. Um, in that Criterion DVD, Ebert wrote the essay in the booklet. Oh, that's really cool. And he called the, called the rock an action picture that rises to the top of the genre because of a literate, witty screenplay, skilled craftsmanship in the direction, and special effects. Ebert gets it when it comes mm-hmm. to the rock. 2014, Time Out polled several um, critics, directors, actors, stunt actors to list their top action films of all time. The Rock placed 74th on the list. A little low, maybe. Yeah. Um, well, yeah, what are the it, first 73? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, and generally considered, I think when people look back, most people kind of lean toward this. For a long time, people said before he got a little more critical love recently. This was Michael Bay's only good movie. Um, I think now people would just simply say it's his best movie. Yes, some people. I, I would say that. We'll find out. Yeah. Though. No. Yeah. <laughs> uh, in June of 2017, they discussed the idea for a sequel to The Rock that would involve Goodspeed and Mason being chased by the government after escaping due to their possession of the microfilm. No, don't want to see it. Movie ends perfectly. I love it. Yeah. Like, it, I don't need it's like, yeah, we don't need like, you know, it's all over. Everyone's too old. We don't need like, it's let it be. Yeah. yeah. Just let a perfect, um, let a perfect and, singular thing be a perfect yeah. singular thing. And yeah. Connery, Connery's gone and irreplaceable. <laughs> um, So there is one utterly bizarre follow up to this. And that, of course, is how this movie relates 
to the Iraqi Chemical Weapons Program and Weapons of Mass Destruction. Get ready. Get ready. <laughs> so scene from the film was the basis for incorrect and false descriptions of the Iraqi Chemical Weapons Program according to the British Secret Service. They were led to believe Saddam Hussein was continuing to produce weapons of mass destruction by a false agent who based his reports on the movie The Rock. Oh my god. <laughs> uh, MI6 chief Sir Richard Dearlove um, outside of Benedict Cumberbatch, perhaps Sir Richard Dearlove, the most British name I can think of. Yep. Um, so the agency had required information from a news source revealing that Iraq was stepping up production of chemical and biological warfare agents. The source was said to have direct access, claimed senior staff who were working seven days a week while the regime was concentrating a great deal on the production of anthrax. Dearlove told chairman of Joint, um, Joint Intelligence Committee, Sir John Scarlett, that they were on the edge of a significant intel breakthrough that could be the key to unlock Iraq's weapons program. However, questions were raised about the agent's claims when it was noticed his description bore a striking resemblance to a scene from the film The Rock. It was pointed out that glass containers were not typically used in chemical munitions, and that a popular movie, The Rock, had inaccurately depicted nerve agents being carried in glass beads or spears. <laughs> Uh, that someone had to, like, say this and do this. <laughs> By February 20, 2003, a month before the invasion of Iraq, mind you, MI6 concluded that their source had been lying over a period of time, but failed to inform um, Number 10 or others, even though Prime Minister Tony Blair had been briefed on this intelligence. According to The Independent, the false claims of weapons of mass destruction were the justification for the UK's entering the war. Mm -hmm. um whoopsie doopsie would be the yep. response to that um <laughs> co-writer david weisberg was asked about this and he said what's so amazing was anybody in the poison gas community would immediately know that this was total bullshit such obvious bullshit weisberg said he was unsurprised desperate agent might resort to films for inspiration but dismayed that authorities didn't do apparently the most basic fact checking or vetting of the information if you ask a chemical weapons expert it would have been immediately obvious it was ludicrous weisberg said he had some funny emails after the report but he felt it's not a nice legacy for the film it's tragic that we went to war he concluded jesus christ it is yeah yeah we live in you know People think things got shitty and weird in the last three years. No, like, it... People lost their minds in 2001, and they were never truly recovered. Yeah, no. The, 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 the 1990s, there were some crazy moments then, too. Let's not act like that was perfect in any way, shape, yeah. or form. That was, no. yeah, that might have been the last time we ever had a chance to be, like, some semblance of sane. It's just, yeah, spiral, mental spiral. <laughs> um, so back to Don Simpson. While present during the pre-production of The Rock, while the movie was actually being filmed, as we noted, he was scarce. Hensley, who was on set every day of the filming, did not remember seeing Simpson once during the San Francisco phase. Once production shifted to L.A., sets were built on Sony Pictures Stage 30, while Bruckheimer oversaw the actual production, Simpson would drop by periodically. Tensely, Simpson was visibly deteriorating. He was still the ironclad guy, impregnable as always, but he looked bad. He looked sick. 
He was very overweight. He was pasty. He was full of energy, but he looked like a dying man. Um, he continued to work, though, continued to push. And through the end of the year, through the production of The Rock, and by January of 1996, his schedule was limited almost exclusively to medical appointments. Um, he had stopped going out and he would just tell friends he was too unwell to join them for dinners or premieres. Um, according to the author of the book that we have been quoting liberally from High Concept on Simpson and the Hollywood ex Culture of Excess, Charles Fleming, Simpson's appointment book for the last month of his life is a bleak expanse of emptiness. He saw psychiatrists. He continued to work on his physique and his looks. He briefly visited The Rock, which was continuing to film, mind you, in January of 1996 in Los mm -hmm. Angeles on the sound stages. Um, he had he he had non he was still doing nonstop drugs, and his weight had ballooned to the heaviest he'd ever been mm. in his life. Um, he kept a refrigerator in the hallway of his second floor bedroom stocked with frozen pizzas, frozen cheeseburgers, and tubs of peanut butter that he ate straight from the jar. His five foot seven inch frame was now carrying 230 pounds. Um, he had not been seen at a Hollywood. He was so ashamed of his obesity that he didn't leave his house and he had not really been seen at a public Hollywood function since June of 95. It's very, I mean, we've talked about it. He was an abusive, difficult man. But this is a bleak ending. Yeah, it's truly, it is just, just a grim portrait you're painting. It's, yeah. it's so, it's sad. It just, it's just, yeah, as horrible as he was, this is just, oh, man. So, on um, January 19th, 1996, he was continuing to try and find work, build up his now solo production shingle. He had a phone conversation with the aforementioned James Toback about a script James Toback had written called Harvard Man that they were interested in making. Simpson planned to take Harvard Man to Disney's Joe Roth. <laughs> All these guys, uh, back. all the guys, and he knew Roth would cut a deal, and he was going to be in it too. He was Don Simpson was planning on losing weight and being in it, playing an FBI agent. Um, of course, of course, yes. Uh, they had about a three-hour conversation lasting past midnight, so this would be January eighteenth, nineteen ninety-six, heading into January nineteenth. Uh before Simpson hung up, Toback said Simpson's energy and attention span had begun to fade near the end of their call. Simpson had been drinking wine and guzzling peanut butter. It was late. Toback hung up the phone, confident about Simpson's state of mind and Harvard man's future. Simpson did not go directly to bed. He left his second floor bedroom for his office on the first floor, left a telephone message for his assistant. Sometime later, he went into the bathroom wearing a bathrobe and his reading glasses. In his hand was a copy of James Reardon's just-published biography of filmmaker Oliver Stone, aptly titled Stone, The Controversies, Excesses, and Exploits of a Radical Filmmaker. Simpson sat down on the toilet and died. 
sometime around one o'clock in the morning on January 19, 1996, Simpson's heart simply stopped beating. He fell to the bathroom titles, clutching his glasses as a stone biography dashed down beside him. He's found the following afternoon by his maid. Um, they immediately called his private investigator to cover up anything. Um, Jerry Bruckheimer was just setting off for a meeting with Disney TV executives to talk about the Dangerous Minds television series. Um, he immediately canceled. He was informed by Michael Eisner of Simpson's death. Um, and Jerry Bruckheimer, um, supposedly said, I've been waiting for this call for 20 years. Um, someone called an ABC executive about the Dangerous Minds project and the ABC executive told them, don't worry, the Simpson thing won't slow us down. Hmm. The Simpson thing was Simpson's death. By Friday afternoon, yeah. the word was out that first the word that he was overdosed and was in the hospital, and then he was, you know, there was uh, all sorts of different reports on it. Right. From the set of The Rock, when Sean Connery was informed of Simpson's death, Sean Connery simply said, can't say I'm surprised, and walked off. Yeah, I mean, that's how it's... Yeah, what else can anyone say? Like, it's... like <laughs> You know, it's just... That's that's how he lived his life, and... Yeah, I don't know. It's... Yeah, mm -hmm. it's, it's a bummer. It's a true... It's just grim. Yeah, and... They... The, um... They had discovered... You, you name it, in terms of prescription drugs, both on the premises and in his system... And basically, his heart just kind of exploded, for the most part. You know, just under the pressure of what had um, what had gone on, and the abuse he had put his body through. Death yeah, was ruled it, accidental. It's pretty much like yeah, the only more depressing. I just it's like Chris Farley. That's the only thing yeah. I can th the only I can think of. It's just yeah, it's just truly <laughs> just. Uh, and it's one of those things too where he kind of did it. His insecurities did it to him because, like, yeah, it's like it's like had he had someone in his life, had he, yeah. you know, there there are ways this could have been avoided, and it's just everything was kind of the cards were he put the cards against himself. He mm -hmm. set up everything for this to happen, whether you know intentional or unintentional. Yeah, uh, Simpson was cremated, and Jerry Bruckheimer and friends flew his ashes to Aspen, Colorado, where they released them into the wind mm -hmm. um personal habits were on display physical details of his demise were matter of public record simpson legend not the one he wanted not the one he attempted to create but the one of his weaknesses sexual predications and substance addictions created for him was struck and uh they ended up having a series of informal gatherings for him all of hollywood came out and talked about what a visionary he was and um probably made deals at his funeral yeah that sounds fitting <laughs> at the morton steakhouse in west hollywood 
Okay. <laughs> and you know, what did we learn? We got Don Simpson. Um you know, he burned incredibly brightly. Mm-hmm. But I think you kind of just summed it up in that his all-consuming insecurity led to not only him hurting other people, led to him not only creating a bunch of huge successes, it also led to him being dead by 52. If he was alive today, he'd be 79 years old this year. And yeah, I'm like, yeah. sorry to laugh. I know uh, it's just like you're kind of like, no. oh, that was just very heavy. And sometimes you kind of laugh. But um, yeah, well, his life, yeah, it's just so much of it is so absurd and weird. And it sounds like a fucking, it's almost like a fucking Brothers Grimm fable at times or something. It's just like the, like, it's like this warning. Like, yeah, it makes you realize, you know, have people in your life. Like, don't be, uh, and don't be, if you've gained like five pounds or 10 pounds, people aren't going to be fucking mad at you. Like, you know, like don't disappear into yourself. Don't run away. I don't know. It's just, it's very grim. It's very sad. I think that, you know, and according to Fleming's book, you know, Simpson was certainly not the only figure who was doing the exact same thing. Simpson just took it further, but there were multiple executives who fell into the same cocaine trap, especially on the executive side. They got the, you know, Oh, huge. absolutely just destroying themselves to get ahead um and for what for the rock for flash dance is it worth <laughs> no no um, and I, I, this is coming from a guy who lives outside of for my family for movies they're my favorite thing in the world beyond my family and friends and <laughs> And yet, it's not, you know, but you get so warped. You get so tricked by this. Mm-hmm. And you have to find a way to combat it. You have to find a way, you know, and it's it's America, too, though. We're seeing it all, all, cult, all forms of culture, all jobs you know it's like and it always has been this is what hollywood is built on it's been about men i'm using men very specifically there yeah (laughs) who have come under a different name different face different persona to create themselves in the image they think to be correct based on what they have seen in other images presented by the men who made themselves up before them in this business yeah it's it's just all these people just not comfortable in their own skin trying to striving to get that comfort or or, or dying trying to and it, you know yeah that does beg the question is like the fight worth it because <laughs> it takes yeah. it takes more than you know you know i came here naively thinking it was just like i gotta be a good writer well, there's a lot more to it than that. And yeah. are you willing to do the a lot more to it part? But, you know, Don Simpson came to Hollywood from Alaska as a five foot seven tiny nerd who probably was picked on by the jocks. He lied about it, though, of course, and said he wasn't and said he was one of them. Mm-hmm. Found extraordinary, ma- extraordinarily massive success. 
but left a trail of ruin behind him in his own death. And yeah. he's a true he is the truest Hollywood story. <laughs> he's like that like trolley in the rock where like it's he it was incredible. It was a lot of, it was entertaining, but it also caused a fuck ton of damage and it ended up with him forty feet in the air with fire on his ass. Like Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Oh man. I think I you know, I think you mentioned a few episodes ago we're empathetic guys. So despite his monstrous monstrousness there, I have empathy for someone who sadly lets their insecurities dominate them like that. Like I feel bad yeah. that he that that had to happen because he was clearly a smart, talented guy. Yeah. yeah, well, and it's and it's just like a it's like a warning. Just like yeah. learn to be comfortable with yourself. It's just so much you realize like how much fucking like drama and tragedy comes from people that can't like live with how they are they can't square mm. off who they are and like i don't know like and those are a, all was... the, those are all the people in charge at this point i mean yeah. like, D- donald trump and elon musk are those guys they hate themselves and they hate everyone around them yeah and it they is, yeah they that fire will never be clenched because there is no drug or money or power item in the world that can make them satisfied yeah there's no amount of therapy that will fill whatever hole they need to be filled Uh and then they would be skeptical of therapy because they would think that they're too smart for therapy ah yeah that's just that's the fucking yeah that's that's the thing is like yeah maybe then that's the maybe trump needs to file like fucking talk to studs or some shit i don't know know. like something it's like it is just, yeah, I don't know. Yeah, be... It's, it, except that there's some good things, there's some bad things, and nothing's really going to work out because we're all going to die. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Pobuddy's po- po- nerfed, man. Like, it's never going to, like, yeah, like, you're never going to have... Your face is never going to be as good as Brad Pitt's. Your, you know, your uh, ideas aren't going to be as uh, wise and interesting as charles dickens's or whatever the fuck i don't know what like scale well, you, you would hear to of, and all of those people who have this one thing that's huge and amazing and worth envy of they got a boatload of their own fucking problems yeah yeah <laughs> that's the thing is like you think it's better on the other side and then you take a look at the other side and you realize oh shit they're dealing with shit too that's yeah. the yeah that's the thing we're all just yeah it's just like being able to it's a but you realize, ugh, and I know I'm going to sound fucking corny saying shit like this, but you do realize it's a blessing that being able to, like, just be fine with yourself when you're riddled with humanity and, in, you know, and problems like that. Yeah, it's a it's a gift. And if you can't, you got to work on that. It's, <laughs> I well, guess. It's, very, I don't it's know. very difficult, and I'm not sure if it's encouraged in Western society. It should be. I don't know. Yeah, that's, be, the, yeah. that's the problem. It's like we're fucking always heading towards something. We're always trying to. It's never good enough. There's well, always I mean, like all these, all the most hardcore capitalists all think that they got some sort of green light in the afterlife to do whatever the fuck they want, and they are in for quite a reckoning. That's what I'll yeah. say. Yeah, I think when they when they go to hell, see the devil. Yeah, yeah, it's like, oh, that was a mistake. <laughs> yeah, if, they, if or if it's just emptiness, then you can say to yourself, "I really wish I had done something like enjoyable and decent 
in my finite time. That's Ooh. the way I like to think about things. Yeah. Is that, like, I'm not too, con- you know, get into it here, but I'm not too convinced of much about the other side. Exactly. And so I would prefer to continue to try and improve and be better and enjoy myself and the people around me as much as humanly possible now. Like, Don't be a schmuck. Yeah. And be, and be thankful that I can do that. Yes. You know, and maybe if, you know, maybe that's how Jerry Bruckheimer lives. I have, I'm sure that there are, you know, or I'm not sure. I don't know. Allegedly. I don't know how to say it, but that there are skill, plenty of skeletons there but yeah you can't you can't be in those like circles without yeah yeah he is also nearing 80 years old and he produced the most financially successful movie of 2022 until two weeks from now (laughs) (laughs) our boy mr cameron (laughs) or james cameron has some thoughts on that Um, (laughs) but Uh. as we mentioned jerry so we are not done Jerry Bruckheimer. We have decided we're going to keep checking in with the career of Jerry Bruckheimer post Don Simpson. Mm. Um, which will lead us to further digressions as the show progresses. Um, but I, I'm i really like kind of proud about how we were able to dig deep here on this this story. Very dark, very, you know, story. And hopefully we did some justice to tell this interesting Hollywood cautionary tale, if you will. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, so that's it for the Don Simpson story, which is, yeah. What did we, you know, I wrote down in my notes, uh, what did we learn? Anything? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's sordid and tragic. <laughs> and, you know, I mean, we've seen it by all accounts. There are still wild card executives yeah. and producers who are, you know, getting fired and arrested to this day. And if he had survived, Don Simpson would undoubtedly have been part of the Me Too movement if he had made it that far. Yeah, a hundred and ten percent. He'd be yeah. yeah, he'd be with he'd have be on a fucking uh one of those things with Harvey Weinstein, yeah. what are they called? The little uh canes or whatever who cares it doesn't matter they yeah. fucking suck yeah yeah and so i mean we're not we're not here to praise but um we are here to try and look at it with an even head rather than mm-hmm. just blindly condemn i guess yeah <laughs> or just to be like yeah it just yeah it just it's just a it's a true yeah yeah well i right. think th- i think the thing is the best thing to for these kind of people try our best to understand them mm-hmm. because that will help teach you know younger people children what not to do and well and what the thing too to is yeah it's he's he was a real human so it's yeah. like trying to figure out like yeah why what would lead a human down this this path and it seems like a lot of it like is what we said earlier a lot of it's like insecurity and this desire to fill a hole he could never fill and it's just yeah yeah. how do we and hopefully we learn like the thing we take away from it is how to like you know if you can't fill that hole at least uh live with that hole yeah i don't know yeah try your best to be okay with it yeah because that hole's in all of us yeah well absolutely you know 
not everything's going to work out. You know, I mean, yeah, it's like there's never, and you just kind of have to roll with it as much as you possibly can. And not everyone around you is going to be perfect. Somebody might make a comment about, I don't know, you know, <laughs> your saw any any physical attribute, you name it, yeah. And you just have to roll with it because it's their pride. It's their problem that they're making a comment about you, not yours. It's their yeah. insecurity is why they're doing it and trying to hopefully learn from that and continue to make rad movies like The Rock, yes. but do it, but do it in the healthiest way possible. Well, yeah, and I think it's also just like, yeah, like make it like were you the one who brought up? I think like we were talking, and this might have been off the pod about how like James Cameron was on the set of like Ron Howard, like Ron Howard's Apollo. <laughs> Uh, eleven or thirteen? I can't remember. Apollo thirteen. Apollo thirteen. Yeah, yeah. Apollo thirteen, and um, I think it was on Chapo. I think they. Made oh it shit! Chapo. Jesus. Yeah. Ugh, how sad like, is that? I'm go, like fucking. Go I, listen I, to the um, <laughs> the most recent episode. David Roth guested on. It's fun. It's a good one. <laughs> oh, it's a great <laughs> we'll one. Them, but we'll then a plug. Also deeply depressing that I mistook a conversation we had for an episode of a podcast, but that's besides the point. Yeah. But like uh. <laughs> like oh were we talking about uh, a certain hinge point earlier but yeah. uh uh but uh um, well, i think I what know. you're getting at though is the idea that james cameron has made it concentrated attempts to learn yes and uh and importantly like ron howard proves with that movie you can make a stone cold classic and be like a normal nice man and be a decent human being yeah. yeah you can now you know will he ever make like an avatar is it possible to make an avatar and be a nice guy we'll you know we'll find, we'll find out, out on yeah. yeah this is this this winter but uh like uh you know i think like i think that's like a noble endeavor like you i think you, and, 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 I, and i also think that so many people associate great art with like unpredictable. He's a madman. This guy, he was so passionate and he mm -hmm. almost cut off his ear. Like, you know, that. Well, you watch it in the, the Willem Dafoe, um, Van Gogh. Yeah, exactly. I was so funny. I was thinking Lust for Life too, like the, yeah. the Kirk Douglas one. They're both great. But like, uh, yeah, like, you can make great art and like be a family man. And I, and I refuse to believe that that can't, you can't, that you can't swear the, like, I, like, like that, that has, that's possible. You can do that. You, I think, and, yeah. I think so too. I think so too. And, um, because like I was talking with therapist about, mm -hmm. you know, the liberation that can come with acceptance and how much good art could come mm. when you just accept what's around you and the ups and downs of it all. I think you could see things clearer. You could see humanity clearer. And if your goal is to show a very individualized version of humanity that can also be seen as a general broad view of humanity, which I think is the goal of like movies mm. is something specific that is also universal simultaneously um how else would you know discover that if you can't pull your own shit out of your insecure you know to, yeah. to, to like view other things beyond yourself with a clear of mind i think it's yeah i agree i think it's possible
I think yeah, it has to be. It has to be. Perhaps James Cameron has done it in Avatar: Way of the Water. Ooh, man! What it, a... If anyone could find reach a Nirvana level of transcendence, it's him. <laughs> yeah, it's like he's. That is just like yeah, he's on a different level. He's not a human anymore. If he's been, if he's able to like be a normal guy. Did you and see then, he said uh, he anticipates he's going to make probably six more movies? So fucking insane. He hasn't, made, he hasn't made a movie in 12 years. It's taken 12 years between movies. He's in his late 60s. I'll make six more. Yeah, dude. <laughs> I love it. He's going to be like, he's he's going to be like, he'll find a way to like, you know, extend his life without being like a total. I feel like so many people yeah. that like try to extend their lives are total absolute ghouls and freaks like your Peter Thiel's, your Elon Musk's or whatever, but he's going to find like a holistic way to fucking do oh, it and live to be 300. He, he's going to do it through endless curiosity and creativity and a vegan diet. That's yes. how he's going to do it. Oh yeah. <laughs> That's another great gem from that. God, so much of that. It's so funny. I think like listening to that, we just talk about Cameron so much that in my brain, I was like, yeah. Oh yeah, that was the conversation we Resist. had. Yeah. <laughs> so forthcoming on the show next week, we return to the world of Scott Scott, but we also return to the world of Jerry Brockheimer mm. in the film Enemy of the State starring Will Smith and Gene Hackman. This is a banger. It's a great movie. I watched it in the couple, last couple of years. I cannot wait to watch it again. I also recommend, if anyone has the time, to watch Francis Ford Coppola's film The Conversation because oh. there are some key crossover elements. I saw the movie film. I saw that movie for the first time. I think this either this year or the very end of last year, and it's like one of my fa- it's my it's my favorite it's my favorite Coppola. And I like that movie more than The Godfather. I think. Wow. But the, yeah, it's great. It's phenomenal. So is Enemy so of the good. State. Um, Enemy of the State is able to rent through most of the traditional services. There's also Blu-ray available, and then the week after that, A Christmas Miracle. Patrick and I, for our annual Christmas episode, will be stepping away from the holiday itself to be celebrating a real-life miracle. And that is, we are going to review, discuss, and spoil Avatar Way of the Water. (laughs) Man, do you think Santa brings his sled to Pandora? Oh, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So I think he does that, but he has to, like, get into a Santa avatar. He He has a giant Santa Navi. Yep. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, it's it's and it's awesome. And it's awesome and transcendent. It's awesome. Santa, Santa also does not want to leave Pandora, and no. it sucks because Christmas ends for the rest of the universe, but Christmas is twenty four seven on Pandora because Santa lives there. <laughs> yeah, he lives there, and you know what? The Navi they hate it. They don't understand the toys. They're too small for them. Well, they they but they also are like we have so many natural gifts in it's the true. in the world. We what do I need a PlayStation Four for? <laughs> Yeah, I don't need to play Grand Theft Auto Five. Yeah. I can I can put my uh, my 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 head tail into a mighty cron to like a freaking like pterodactyl, and yes, that I'm like soul melding with. I surf on it. It's like why would I want to do any? Why would I want to like play Monopoly? <laughs> yeah, I don't need this Nokia N-Gage, sir. Exactly. <laughs> uh, we have our tickets. We have bought them ahead of time. 
I yeah. have some, I got mine in something called IMAX Laser 3D. I don't even know what the hell it is. <laughs> I think so that's excited. like the Navi plug. I think yeah. you, you have to plug it into your plug head. Plug it in, yeah. I am <laughs> jazz. I, I have Thursday, December 15th. Ooh. I think you have a December 15th as well. I do. Different, I have different theater. Yep. I, I got a, I got a ticket. See, I'm like an AMC boy, ride or die. Like I have a friend that works at AMC, but, uh, with the, the stubs thing, you can't get a, uh, you can't get a, uh, you can't use the, so stubs uh, for all you AMC stubs heads, there are certain movies this year that you can't use the free ticket for. And they're, they're of course the biggest movies. It's going to be, I think it's like black Panther two. Uh, there was like another one that's coming out. Uh, besides avatar but avatar is the other one yeah. uh the other other one i guess is what i'm trying to say and so uh i just i got it at regal i'm excited never been to this theater before it's like a three three o'clock showing so i'm gonna be one of the first humans ever to see this movie is i'm excited the, uh, the old arclight and sherman oaks yeah i believe so <laughs> yeah i'll be at the the fabulous americana amc <laughs> <laughs> I love it. I love it. I love those. I, love, I do love the Americana AMC. <laughs> it's so good. See, I love the one at the Grove. I've, I got yeah. the, but they're similar. They're similar in their glory. Yeah, they're great. Um, but yeah, so we'll be talking Avatar among our closing out the year, getting heading toward closing out the year. The and uh, continuing forward with Scott Scott, continuing forward with Jerry Bruckheimer, and continuing forward. With Michael Bay, we'll get to that though at some point in the near future. Um, if you have any follow-up questions or comments about the Don Simpson story, if you if you do not think we were tasteful, <laughs> or <laughs> or you think we were exceedingly tasteful, and you'd like to compliment us on it, yeah, doff your cap to us. Doff your cap, t- tip of the cap to y'all for <laughs> looking at that with a level head. Um, <laughs> check in with us at the Academy Academy Podcast at gmail.com or on Twitter at the Acad Acad, where we are occasionally updating things. Oh. Um, but that was, you know, we went through it. We were definitely enthusiastic about The Rock and very, very sad. In the second half of the episode, yeah, there were smiles and frowns, and they were appropriately placed. I think they were mostly appropriately placed. But check out The Rock, watch it again if you've seen it a million times, or if you've never seen it before. God bless you. Have 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 the time of your life. It'll be a fun afternoon for you. Oh man, see if like a movie. This is the type of movie that I feel like must play at like um revival revival theaters. Is that the right I, term? Yeah, yeah, I think it. I think it. It. You know, it'll. It'll show up at you know in the Los Angeles area at a Los Feliz three or New Beverly every once in a while. Hundred percent, yeah. So like if if it, if you if you're in a town and if you see it playing at a local theater, some watch it in a watch, watch it on film. Yeah. yeah. Oh man, it's like a treat. It'd be yeah. yeah. The the Vida. Absolutely. So for Patrick, I'm Don. We will see you next week on the Academy Academy. My favorite song is Cashmere. I love that song, that riff. <laughs> I like the one with Godzilla, the, the Puff Daddy. You know, remember that one, right? 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 <laughs> Matthew Broder, Matthew Broder, Godzilla. <laughs> and I'm gonna be high Incredible. That's... as a kite by then. I 